So tonight is part two of meaningful metaphors for the church, and tonight we will be looking at the temple, the household, pillar and buttress, and the flock. Now, in all honesty, we're not really going to be looking at household. I think I mentioned on Sunday morning that that's really going to be a focus of, uh, of this, this coming Sunday morning, so I'm just going to mention it and move on because we'll look at that on Sunday morning. But what we're going to look at here is the idea of temple. And this is a, a, such an interesting one because it, it gives us that sense of some of the things that we've considered in previous weeks and it brings some of those pieces together so beautifully. Remember, the temple is, is, is a construct, it is, it is a building that has a foundation beneath it. And Christ, the terminology that's used in Scripture, uh, sometimes they fight over whether this Greek word is a reference to a cornerstone that sits on the ground or whether it is a, a capstone that sits at the top of the building. That, that topmost that holds all the walls and, and the dome together there's a sense in which Christ is the head that holds all the pieces together and it all builds to and points to him. And there's also a sense in which there he is, that foundation, that perfect cornerstone, which is that uniquely cut stone that makes everything else in the foundation and everything else in the building uh, uh, find its lines and measurement. Christ is all of those things. Now, when we're in here, uh, this comes, uh, so much of the New Testament comes on the heels of the Old Testament. And so though you can understand the, uh, some things in the New Testament simply reading it, some of the depth and expression and significance of, of the things stated in the New Testament, you won't get the full import of it if you're not also aware of the Old Testament. And so we're going to see these things. You know that when they came out of Israel, they had, uh, at that point, uh, God established the law and the old covenant with the children of Israel, and then he also told to Moses to make a tabernacle, right, or what we call a tent of the meeting, and exact materials, exact measurements, exact furnishings, exact carvings, exact colors, exact shapes, everything was told to Moses with precision. And he had to make it in that way. And that, and that traveled with them in all of the places that they went. And then when they moved into the land, it was at Shiloh for a time. And it moved from place to place, as God would say, until he decided to establish a temple in his name in Jerusalem. Now, now, that temple that was made originally by Solomon was not the temple that was there during the days of Christ. That was what we call a, the second temple. But it was remade in, in roughly the same place. And, and so some people will often speak of, scholars will speak of second temple Judaism. Even though it's not exactly the second temple, but the second in terms of a, a significant expression. We know it was destroyed and to, a, to a, in a sense, rebuilt when they came back with Ezra and Nehemiah, right? And so 
So it's not the same original one, but it was the place where God said that he would establish his name. When people would go to meet with God, they would go to the temple. God said with regard to giving their tithes, with regard to uh, their, the first fruits and, and the offerings for their firstborn, the, the atonement, the uh, Pentecost, people would have to pilgrimage from wherever they're at and they would have to come and rejoice before the Lord in Jerusalem. Okay, so we've already talked in the past and so hopefully I'm not going to recover it, but there is a sense in which God's omnis- omnipotent omniscient and omnipresent, right? And so he is not only everywhere in Israel, he's everywhere in the world, but there is a special presence that he manifests in Jerusalem and a special presence in the temple and a special presence in the Holy of Holies within the temple. You get that? Okay. Jesus looks upon this temple at various times, and says this, uh, things like this. In John chapter 4, he is speaking, remember, to the woman at the well. And he says this, the hour is coming. And she had asked him, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. Our fathers say that we are to worship on this mountain. Which one is it? Because she perceived Jesus was a prophet. And Jesus' answer is very meaningful. Again, there's a a degree in which Jesus' answer would be highly offensive to the Jews. They would not like this because their special place, which has been the special place for centuries, is not going to be special anymore in that same sense. And even today, people can't get over it. We still call it the Holy Land. And, 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 and people somehow think, if I just go there, no, you're not going to become more spiritual if you go there. Certainly, it can be a tremendous experience to see the geography and just to, to, to deepen that sense of, wow, Jesus really was in the flesh. He walked on trails like we walk on trails. He went to markets like we could go to markets and such. But Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers, that's also a strong statement that would be a bit of a condemnation to the Jews who would reject Christ. Jews following Judaism, worshiping the God of the Old Testament in some sense, if they do not accept Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, they're not true worshipers. They could continue to go to the temple, they can continue to offer their sacrifices, they can continue to follow all of the terms of the old covenant, but if they are rejecting Jesus, they are not true worshipers. That's strong language, isn't it? Again, John mentions something like that as you're reading through 1 John. You'll, say, you'll see that he who does not have the Son does not have the Father, and he who has the Son has the Father also because there is this connection. So true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Which Jesus basically, 
the answer to the question was, which place? And the, the answer Jesus gives is not the mountain or the temple. It actually is going to be where God's people, in truth, gather to worship him. And we're going to see how this unfolds. So it's Jesus and his resurrection of his body ended the validity of the earthly temple as a place of God's presence. The sort of picture of that no longer being the separated sacred place for the presence of God. Most of you will remember when Jesus said it is finished and breathed out his last, what happened? Yes, that temple veil that separated everyone from the Holy of Holies, the place only the high priest got to go into once a year, was torn from top to bottom. Now, anybody who was in there could see it, and, and the simple note is this, it wasn't so special anymore. <laughs> because what it represented had, it had, in a sense, been superseded by Christ, who, doesn't me, who didn't merely represent the presence of God. He is God with us. Yeah. And so that was done. Uh, in, uh, the earthly temple as the place of God's presence and his people coming before him there and established the body of Christ... That's the assembled church as where his special presence dwells. Now, let's see it in John 2. Jesus says this. Jesus answered them, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Which they thought he lost his mind, because you cannot build a temple in three days. But was he talking about the building? Not at all. What's interesting is what, Jesus, what this passage does is it gives us a, an incredibly nuanced statement because he says this, uh, they said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. Verse 21 helps us out lest we be as confused as they were by saying, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And what's interesting to note about that is what? Three days, his body, in one sense, the body of Christ was raised from the dead. But what's also interesting is Jesus laid his life down for the church, for his sheep. And so in, in, as he laid his life down for the church... He not only, uh, in three days, did, did he, was his body raised, but there is a sense in which his body, the body of Christ, is established by virtue of his shed blood. Because note this, now, in the death of Christ, from Adam to Abraham and onward, all of the saints of the Old Testament are now in Christ, in his resurrection, added to the church. How can you say that? How can they be added to the church? Uh, Jesus shed his blood, laid his life down for 
the church. And there's no forgiveness of sin apart from his sacrifice. Is there? And is Abraham going to be forgiven? And is Isaac going to be forgiven? And what are the, what's the grounds of their forgiveness? Christ's shed blood, his perfect sacrifice, which he says was for his church. And so that's how we know that we are, there's a sense in which we are all members of that one church. And so the, the body of Christ, it, it almost carries these two nuances here, his risen body and his established body. Which is interesting because it is his established body uh, as it gathers together that is going to be that which now represents what the temple represented then. There is the presence of God. Now the gathered people, this is the temple, this is the presence of God. This is where we draw near to him. And so we'll see that unfold a little bit more. He was speaking about his body. Therefore, when he was raised, his disciples, remember, he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. In 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and following, it reminds us of this. You come to him, this is Peter, to the elect, you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. That is uh, specifically speaking of Christ. He, we come to him as a living stone. And by the union we have with him through faith, verse 5 says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, one way that the temple was referred to were, were words such as this the house of God okay so when you see house don't get confused there the kind of house spiritual house that's being referred to it says to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices the place where the priests offered sacrifices wasn't just a house <laughs> it was the house of God it was the temple, and we ourselves are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, I love that statement, right? Cornerstone believes in him, not in it. Because the cornerstone represents who? Christ is that cornerstone and will not be put to shame. This honor, so this honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I like that. Listen, for those who, who believe, you know what Christ is? The cornerstone. Even for those who don't believe, you know what Christ is? the cornerstone. That's who he is. And the world is going to have to deal with the fact that he is who he is. He is Lord. He is the Savior. And that's it. 
there's no other Savior, there's no other Lord, and you can't act like he's not these things. But it, it, we build on. Second to, uh, Corinthians 6.16, what agreement has the temple of God? Again, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Listen, for we are the temple of the living God. Again, I want you to note that the context of the we are the people of the living God is, is, is yes, there is a sense in which we are individually, but there is a greater sense in which we are the temple of God when we come together collectively. Keep reading with me here. It, God says this, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now that's quoting from the Old Testament and so let's go to that place where it speaks of that. Ezekiel 37 verse 26 and following is prophesying of the new covenant era, prophesying of the covenant of peace where Christ would make reconciliation with God through his blood. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will now again, some of those have to be understood spiritually. We are now taken out of this world, out of the kingdom of darkness, and into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's a that's a the spirit spiritual land in which we now dwell. So sometimes land, house, temple take on a little bit different significance. Now we want to be cautious not to just take symbolic everything, okay? But we also don't want to miss the validity of the symbolism that is in there as it unfolds in the New Testament. Multiply them. And will, listen, set my sanctuary in their midst. Which, which means what? Among the people with whom I've made a covenant of peace, I'm going to set my place of holy meeting in their midst forevermore. That's a pretty long word with a pretty long meaning forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And again, we have Israel redefined in the New Testament to be all of those who are united to Christ by faith. Carrying that sense, I can't unpack all those things this evening. We've looked at that before. Isaiah 28 also says it this way, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And what was it talking about there? 
who is Jesus Christ. Now, how many of the Jews understood that when that was declared at this time? Most of them wouldn't even necessarily have seen this as a prophecy of the Messiah. Because it sounds like he's talking about a building. But see, there, the, the complexity of the ways that God describes and presents to us Jesus are astounding. Because he's the capstone, he's the cornerstone, he's the great shepherd. Is he, is he the lion or is he the lamb? And those two animals convey to me very different ideas. Right? But the scriptures give us both of those. He was standing in the midst of them like a lamb who had been slain, and yet here he is, the lion of Judah, who has triumphed and conquered. So all of these wonderful pictures set forth Christ because there is only one foundation, and that foundation is Christ. Now, we've said before, but isn't the foundation to an extent possibly also the apostles? Well, the apostles are a foundation in the sense that they lay the foundation. But do they preach themselves? Paul says we do not preach ourselves, but Christ and ourselves as his servants. And so, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3.10, listen, according to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Hmm. Well, what was that foundation? You, if you were to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you would see the foundation was this. When I came to you, I decided to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. Right, So he laid, when he came in there, he wasn't going to talk all kinds of philosophy. He wasn't going to get any debates, extreme debates about the origins of the universe. He went in there to declare Christ crucified. But listen, after he, like a, I like the fact that he also, uh, under inspiration of the Spirit, says, like a skilled master builder. Ooh, that doesn't come across exceedingly humble, does it? It's, it's not designed to, to, to be humbling, and it's not designed to be prideful either. The point of this is, is to say, what has been given is correct. It is perfectly correct. It is perfectly reliable. It is perfectly trustworthy. Which is why when, when men with our own thoughts go back in and kind of accuse him of being a little bit self-inflating here, they've missed the point, the reason why. And even in other places, he will even say, look, you're kind of forcing me to boast. You know. So, all right, I'll boast a little. But his boasting is always to establish his apostleship so that we understand the role that he has as a foundation layer and as, as one who would establish the truth as we have it in Christ. So, like a skill master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Now, it's important to note this. The idea that he's saying is, look, I come in, I lay a foundation. Then Apollos comes in. 
and he builds on it. Then Cephas comes in and he builds on it. Then you've got your, your other uh, elders and pastors appointed there and, and they build on it. But one thing he's made unequivocal, the foundation that's laid, it's going to stand the test. <laughs> that's what's solid. Now, whatever is built on that, whatever additional uh, teaching or things that somebody brings in now, it says this, someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. Now, uh, let me unpack this for us before we go further. After a solid and true foundation, page two at the top, of Christ, as men build by their teaching, because this is talking about building a, the temple of God, talking about building the spiritual house, which is the local church, which that local church was fragmented following different men. He's saying there is a solid foundation. He's Telling them to be cautious regarding uh, how they're being built. He's warning those among them to take care how they build. And he said, uh, as men build by their teaching and work in the church, it must continue to be what was given by Christ, laid down by the apostles. What is written and not the supposed wisdom, which is actually futile of men. So let's read this. No one can lay another foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The skilled master builder, the apostle, laid the foundation, and that foundation is ultimately Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, the context of this is going to unpack a little further here. Now, we ha there is individual judgment for our own individual service and work, but this is primarily speaking about our service and work in the context of the local body because, look at verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? You know, and in... The southern vernacular, do you not know that y'all are God's temple? Means it's you, plural. It's, 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 not, it's, it's not that there is a sense in which I am, the, each one of us are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Where the Spirit dwells within us. But this passage is talking about the unique sense in which we as a body of Christ, we as, as a community are the house of God, are a spiritual temple, are those living stones that have been built together into a dwelling place for God where He walks with us. Listen, listen what I read. For uh, God will destroy, if anyone destroys God's temple... Do you not know you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. You, that's you all, are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. And this is so important. If anyone among you 
thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, that's, that's a weird sentence, isn't it? All right. If anyone thinks you're wise, here's the path to true wisdom. Become a fool. Now, does that sound like good instruction? Humanly speaking, that sounds like really bad instruction. But here is, here is the sense of it. You think you're wise. Don't trust any of your wisdom. Declare yourself a fool. See yourself as an absolute fool. Which basically says this. Regarding eternity, truth, doctrine, what was and is and is to come, I know nothing. And out of my own heart and out of my own mind, I have nothing to contribute to this conversation. (laughs) I got nothing. Oh, if we could only say that. <laughs> what a different world it would be. It, you know, we, we talked about that kind of the first night we started uh, this, where, where people will say, look, I mean, regarding even the virus thing that's going around, you read articles almost every day. Look, I'm no expert, but this is what I think we need to do and everybody needs to do. You just said you're no expert. You know, and, and I agree, you're not. And, and, and as it all unfolds, we've realized, actually, the experts aren't even necessarily experts. I, I was, again, reading today where they had just said, the WHO, uh, one of their doctors had said, we don't know if it's actually transmitted at all from asymptomatic people to non-asymptomatic people. But then they had to retract that today. Well, I said we, we don't know that it is, but we don't know that it's not. There's still a lot that we don't know. We've got a lot to learn. We're still trying to, what have you been doing? It's been going on for months. And this is like your lifelong career and calling and profession. And, and it's not the first coronavirus that's ever existed. Do you have nothing comparable? What, what's going on? But some of them will, will say, there's so much we don't know. <laughs> That's the rare guy out there to admit there's so much we don't know. Um, but the, the whole sense of it is to say, I don't know anything. But here's the problem, because it also, it also means to say this. You don't know anything. He don't know anything. She don't know anything. Everyone's own independent thoughts and feelings are utterly futile and irrelevant. Whoa. That's pretty strong, isn't it? But listen, he's not done. Just in case he wanted to clarify for us, for the wisdom of this world. So let's say you got it. And you're maxed out on the wisdom of this world is folly with God. We don't use the word folly as much, so let me 
make it even simpler, is foolishness with God. For it is written what? He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. And what is God's wise conclusion about the supposed wise thoughts of men? They are futile, which basically means empty, worthless, nothing. All right, so it would sound like we're in trouble then, right? Or if we, if we can't trust men, then what do we do? I'm glad you asked. Because <laughs> if we can't trust men, then what that's done is it's saying, hey, look, God has taken the entirety of the church and the entirety of doctrine and the entirety of truth out of the hands of men. And he's delivered it, I guess I would say he's delivered it in another sense, by the authority of Christ, through the apostles, into the hands of men. But it's in their hands, not automatically in their heads and in their hearts, which is why it goes on to say, so let no one boast in men. Down just a chapter later, and I think the Holman Christian Standard says this very well, so that's why it's a little change in translation. Brothers, I have applied this, these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you can learn from us the saying. All right, here's a really, really, really important saying. Nothing beyond. What is written? Which is, what's, the, what's the way that the scriptures often refer to that? If you read in Deuteronomy, if you read in Revelation, if you read in Proverbs, do not add and do not take away. Nothing beyond what is written. Because as soon as, as, soon as what is written stops... Then what starts? Men's, men's wisdom, which is actually worthless. Now, when I say that, that's everybody. That's yours truly. <laughs> you know, beyond that, it becomes just opinions and preferences and ideas. Uh, but what is true, what is to be believed, what is to be practiced, what is to be clung to, is what is written, all that is written, and only that which is written. Kind of like the, whole tr the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But of course, not a single man who lays his hand on a Bible and then sits in that stand can tell the whole truth. Because he doesn't know the whole truth. He only knows his part, so, so it's a big pledge, a big vow, but if we want, if we want that to be us, then we have, to, we have to have it be us by saying, look, where the scripture's silent, I'm going to be silent. Where it speaks, I'm going to shout. All right, so... The, this, this is 
the sense in which it is a house, it is a temple. When we come together, there is this rich sense in which God has pledged that we as his temple are the place where he dwells with us, where he meets with us, where he walks with us. Why, it's not a small thing. And one of the ways he is designed to do that is that by the apostles, they would, like skilled master builders, lay that foundation, which is Christ. And then they would build on that, or, or they would build on that foundation through all of their teaching. So basically, I, I, let me give you a, a sense of interpretation to this passage. Different kinds of building takes place there. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, or straw, the ESV says, right? Listen, what we have in the scripture are the apostles building with gold, silver, and precious stones on top of that one foundation that is Christ. When we come today, and men serve and teach and preach to the degree that we do not do nothing beyond what is written, we build with gold, silver, and precious stone. The moment we go beyond that to our own opinions, maybe even our own experience, other things, you're putting some wood, you're putting some stubble, and it's just not going to stand the test. And so here, here, here's my simple point for all, all teachers and preachers and everyone who serves one another in the context of the church. Look, you might be able to build yourself a 20-story, 100-story wood, hay, stubble building. But what's going to happen when the fire comes? I mean, you'd have been better off with building one good, solid room on that foundation of gold, silver, and precious stone than, than building the, this monument that basically becomes a bonfire. It might be impressive for men to see, but the, the shocking thing about it is uh, the, the way that it's pictured there, we would say, but can't we see what they built with just by standing there and looking? Well, this says it will be revealed by fire. All right, so so it makes it, it makes you understand that it's hard for us to easily just look at something and simply pass the assessment. It's harder. All right, but the test comes, and why would we want to cling to anything that's useless? All right, on to the second point: household. Can't wait to look at that on Sunday morning because we're going to unpack those things as it pertains to the Philippian jailer. We're going to look back at, uh, to you and your household in Acts chapter 2 and, 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 and understand the distinction between the household in the Old Testament and the household in the New Testament. What, uh, what is the household of God, a spiritual household, and, and see how those pieces work. So it's going to be um, good to see. And we get some sense of that even in this this. These next two verses, 2 Corinthians 6.18 says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. So you begin to see that the concept of household is taking on a distinctly less fleshly appearance. It's not about 
who's mama and daddy and sons and children and children's children. It's about who are the children of the Lord? Who are united to him by faith in covenant with Christ? So further, um, First Timothy, as we go to pillar and buttress of the truth, it says this, if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, again, this is beautiful because it's, it, it has this idea, uh, we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Well, what is the truth? Now, I know you guys are having movie lines going in some of your heads. You can't handle the truth, whatever. The fact is this. Uh, the truth is Jesus, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then all that is true has come to us by his authority. So listen. We, the church, is to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. Are we innovators? No. We're not even, uh, we, we, want, we want the truth to advance in the world, but we don't advance beyond the truth. You get that sense? You, you, don't, you don't. The design of the church is, is, a, is a pillar and buttress, and I've, I've helped us out here with some definitions from some lexicons. The word pillar is, is from the Greek word stulos, which simply means an upright shaft or structure used to support a building. So what is it that we are as a church to hold up? The truth. That is our job. The church's job in every generation is to hold up the truth. It's not to somehow transform the town the community. It's not to change the world. If God wants to change the world, he can. If he wants us to use us as his instruments of change, he can. But the way he will use us as his instruments of change, if he has purpose to bring widespread change, is by our upholding the truth. It's not by other means. It's not by anything else. And so it's beautiful because the truth is not something that we make and it's not relative. I mean, this is a scary thing in the world we live in today. You know, you got your truth and I got my truth and that's, that's your truth and I'm going to live by... No, no, no. Truth is true. And, and, and I think anybody who ends up saying my truth is basically saying, I, you know, I, I choose my delusion. You know, I, I, I'm going to live my lie. Don't get in the way with your truth. Um, but the second thing, and, and it's really, it's almost as if these things are together, is the idea of a buttress or ground. You know, it's a, a hedrioma, which simply means uh, that which provides a basis, foundation, a, a, a support or a stay or a prop. Uh, uh, one sense of this in construction, uh, I remember watching someone sometime uh, uh, put a mailbox pole in the ground, pour some cement, 
But you know what can happen before that cement dries? If you just walk away, that post can, can change direction. And so then what happens in order to keep it from changing direction? You put some buttresses in. You, you, you put those pieces in. And what are the design of those little pieces of wood that you'll wedge on the ground and wedge up to there, maybe even nail in? What are the, what's the purpose of that wood? It's to hold it straight. It's to hold it true. That is what the church is supposed to do. Just continue to hold straight to the truth. Hold up the truth. Hold straight the truth. That's what we do. It's not that complicated. The world will say, but it's not that effective. Are you sure? God has continued throughout every century by the power of Christ and the work of the Spirit and the proclamation of the Word to build His church. God is continuing even now. I wish that we saw more in our own locality, but God is continuing to save people in China, in the Philippines, in Peru, in India, in Africa. God, Christ is still calling His sheep to Himself. The truth is not, is not only, as the world would say, well, it's not effective. It's the only thing that is effective. How many times do we have to go back to Romans 1 and say, what's the power of God unto salvation? Dances? Music? Videos? What's the power of God unto salvation? The gospel. The truth of the gospel. All right. So, in that sense, it's why, you know, I give you that example. I love the way that God said it to Moses with regard to how he would build in the context of that tabernacle. Listen, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Was he allowed to approximate, make a little tweak because he thinks he's got a little bit better taste in certain things, make a little adjustment because he thinks the people will like it more? What do you think? No, not at all. And then on to the flock. Oh, and with the flock, he is the chief and great shepherd. Scripture says here, as um, Paul speaks to the uh, elders from the church of Ephesus who have come to meet him for the last time, he says this, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, note this, in this particular context, the Ephesian elders were not responsible for, like, the flock in Jerusalem and for the flock that's, that's over in Ephesus. Or, or, yeah, they are for Ephesus, but not all the places. The flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take care, they were for Ephesus, of the church of God which he obtained with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. All right. So, in the midst of my evening weariness, you did catch the fact that these are the elders from Ephesus, and I made the mistake of saying, not also in Ephesus. All right, not in Galatia, not in uh, Jerusalem, not in Samaria, but 
only where they were placed. And so you've got this idea of the flock, but I want you to note this. A responsibility is given to the elders to, to uh, uh, pay uh, close attention to the flock in which they're overseers, but I don't want us to miss this. Jesus Christ and all true churches remains the chief shepherd. Just, the, just like we go back to the idea of the body, Jesus remains the head of the church. And so when there's earthly communities that make certain men the head, that's a mistake. When there's certain communities that, make, uh, that, that single out one particular man among them as the chief, that's a mistake. There is only one chief shepherd... And that's Jesus Christ. And the beauty of that is, well then, how are we going to know what the chief shepherd wants us to do if he has spoken once for all through his son? So he's not given us any verbal guidance right now. Then how are we going to know what he wants us to do? What a beautiful question. That's why he's given us his word. He's given us that truth. Hebrews reminds us of this. It says this in the context of the local church again. It says, obey your leaders, submit to them. Now, the idea there for obey um, isn't that they say uh, stand and you stand and sit and you sit and, and you know, um, everybody move to the front of the church. Let's leave the back open for guests who are coming later, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, that's not what this is talking about. The phrase here that's, that says obey, this is a little bit of a side note, but since I read it, I don't want to get, the, get it confusion. The idea of obey, it carries this sense. If I was to give the literal meaning there, it would say, allow yourself to be persuaded by and yield to them. In other words, the, the, what, what it's urging is, can your teachers and preachers err? Yes, they can. Second question, can you err? All righty, so we got a lot of error happening. <laughs> but the, the urging is this, in a given circumstance, when what is hopefully a faithful, learned, in sound doctrine individual teaches you something, and your initial thought is, that doesn't sound right to me. Start off by giving them the benefit of the doubt. I may be wrong here. They, they may have studied this more than me. They may know more verses. There may be something in the original languages. It is likely, it is, it is more likely that they are right than I am. But let me go ahead and ask that. Let me go inquire. Let me ask my questions. Let me ask how they came to that conclusion. Let them show me and, and, and direct me. But, uh, so it's not a blind follower. Blind follower is dangerous because you might be following a blind man. You know, a blind follower follows a blind. They both fall into the pit. Not good. But if churches are functioning correctly, elders are those who have sound doctrine, correct, instruct, refute, then as they say something that differs, you ought to, in a sense, say, it's more likely that they're right. 
I need to study this a little more. I need to ask them about this. I need to engage, interact. Um, uh, so, so, so that's the sense of it. Uh, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So listen, this is sort of a beautiful thing for the saints. And I'll use myself as a bad example here. And I pray, oh, pray it never happens. But if I were to present something to you inaccurately, and you were to accept it lovingly and believe it, and, that, and, and hold on to that error all of your days, when all is said and done, who does that error count against? <laughs> Me. <laughs> Not against you. What you've done may be to yield, to submit, to defer, to love, to trust. Because at sometimes, you know, generally speaking, uh, when I'm not giving you it in printed form, I can tell you this Greek word means this. You don't know? You're not, I mean, it, it's not hard to deceive, and many have done that. You know, in the original language, this word means, and sometimes I've heard a man say that and thought, what language is he talking about? That's not the biblical languages. Um, but in the original language of what he wanted this passage to say. Yeah, that's what. Um, so, give account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then Hebrews 13, it's, still, it's important to note this. So, so, God has established leaders under shepherds in the church, but even though there is a sense in which they have a role within the body of Christ, within the flock. Now listen, it's still 13, just a few verses later. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep now please note this anytime any of you who happen to have a bible that say the word pastor in it and any of you who have ever heard the word pastor in your life that's basically just a peculiar translation of the word shepherd for for some reason instead of in, uh, translators instead of going from poimen in the greek to shepherd in English, they went from poimen in the Greek, which was pasteur in the Latin, and they stuck with that. We're not Latin. And neither was the original Bible. And so that's the, the, the funny thing. The word that's, you know, you want, in most new translations, you won't even find the word pastor. And yet that's the word that's most commonly used in all of our churches is a word that's not even in the, the whole ESV, for example, <laughs> because it's actually shepherd. So when the scripture says he's the great shepherd, note this, all of the other shepherds that you have here, we ain't great. <laughs> We're not even good. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. We are, by God's grace, doing our best. And, and the way that we will be 
faithful shepherds, though never good and great, but the way we'll be faithful shepherds is not beyond what is written. Uh, By the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory. Again, the scripture opens this up in a few places. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 25, for you were straying like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Shepherd and overseer are the same words used for church leaders. And so it's a reminder to church leaders that All right, I serve as a shepherd and overseer, but over me is the shepherd and overseer. And everything that I do with the sheep, I answer to him. And every decision that's that's taken, we answer to him. And that's pretty serious if it's really understood. It's an intense thought. You know, it's, it's, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, and some people feel this way, they're doing their job, and they're doing their job well, then all of a sudden the boss decides he's going to come and stand there and just watch and see what you're doing. <laughs> you know, and, and some people get a, get a little nervous and, you know, struggle to function, or they're making sure that... They're following every procedure. They're doing everything exact. You know, he said that he wants you to, when you finish that one, to put it back and then get the next one. And I usually just keep it close by because I know I'm going to get back to it in a second. But when he's there, I'm doing everything his way. Why? Because he's the boss. Well, listen, is there ever a time? He's not here. I mean, is there any time that, that, that we, we teach, we preach, we counsel, we communicate, we interact? Is there any point which he's not there? So, God help us take that seriously. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 2 and following. Uh, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, to the men, ex- exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in your charge. So it's not, hey, you were told to obey and submit. Stand down, soldier. No, 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 that's not what, that's not exactly what. Now, there are times where you do see that Paul is telling Titus, with regard to truth, you do not stand down. You declare these things, you command these things, you urge these things with all authority. When it comes to what the Word says, unshakable. You know, and and if you, at times, like Titus is even told, with regard to some who were teaching differently, to rebuke them sharply. We say, come on. Isn't he supposed to speak the truth in love? Isn't he supposed to be patient in teaching? Yes. You know, and God is patient and slow to anger. But I ask you, did he ever get angry? Did that anger ever get poured out? Yeah, it did. 
And so being patient doesn't mean you don't ever get angry. And speaking the truth in love doesn't mean sometimes the most loving thing is to say, don't ever say that again in this church. Don't ever say that again in your head. But not domineering over. The, the sense isn't my way or the highway. The sense is always Christ's way. And this is why we believe this way. And this is why we do this way. And this is why we practice this way. Have a look with me. Have a look. Right? Being examples to the flock. Because what, what does it say in verse 4? When the chief shepherd appears. When the lead pastor when the senior pastor shows up, everybody else is just an associate pastor. I mean, using the common language of today, if you get what I'm saying. All right. It goes on to say that you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Fear not, little flock, Luke says, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Oh, we are the flock. It says this in John. Um, Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own by name. He leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And that's talking about known with, with, with an intimate, intimate experiential communion. Not just a little bit of uh-huh, a little bit of head knowledge and mental assent, more than that. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, he says in John 10. Why? Because he had told even his, his 12 and his 70 when he sent them out, go nowhere among the Gentiles, but go only to the lost sheep of Israel. That was the purpose at that time as he was bringing the old covenant with Israel to its end. But then after that, he explains how it's going to change. Look, this fold, Israel, I got some sheep in there, and I'm going to bring them out. But you know what else? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I've got some from Samaria. I've got some from Antioch. I'm going to even get some up there in Rome. And what does he say? I love what Jesus says here. I must bring them also. <laughs> what do you mean you must? Do you, do, do you not have a choice? No. He came down to do the will of his father. And what is the will of his father? That he will lose none of all that the father has given him, but raise them on the last day. John chapter 6, right? I must bring them. Well, how can he be sure that his sheep will be willing? What if the sheep don't want to come? Uh, he must bring them. Well, what if he can't? Do you know who you're talking about? I must bring them, and here's how he's going to work that out. And they will listen to my voice. What will the sheep do? They will listen. Well, what if they're not willing to listen? Uh, if they're his sheep, they will listen. By his power, they will listen. They will will to listen. Will, will. Okay. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Again, some, some warnings, and we're almost done here. 
these are some warnings into the Old Testament, and oh, that we would heed such ideas today. It says this, those who are supposed to give, give warning of danger, his watchmen are blind. <laughs> they are all without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming and lying down in loving slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite, but they never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understandings. And they have all turned their own way. Well, here's the reality. If you don't have an understanding, then what do you do? You do it your way. I don't know how to do this, but this is how I'm going to do it. Sometimes that does not work out. Uh, Each one to his own gain, one and all. Look at this, what it says uh, uh, of the shepherds in Jeremiah. And I hope this isn't too true around us today. For the shepherds are stupid. Remember, I'm just reading the scriptures here. But... But I, I do agree with the author of scriptures here because you, listen to what they don't do. They do not inquire of the Lord. Oh, that is stupid. Now, how do we inquire of the Lord today? We search it out. We search it out in his word because he has fully spoken all those things that we are to know and that we are to do. They do not inquire of the Lord, therefore they have not prospered and their flock is scattered. Jeremiah 5 says this, the prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their own direction. They do what they want. And here's the terrible part about that. It says, my people love to have it so. The The people of Israel at that time. But what will you do when the end comes? And I think about that too. You know, on occasion you hear stories of there being, uh, you know, a, a, sweet, uh, a preacher, you know, with, with a personable smile and the sweetness of his way of communication and suave hair and, and lighting and cameras and big stadium full of people. And you have all this going on and, and the people are loving it. Oprah's loving it. But is there anything of substance and truth and Christ and growth and repentance there. I mean, is, 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 it, is it about Christ who is the highest and glorious and in him we have a better covenant, we have a better mediator, we have better promises and is somebody trading all of those betters that we have in Christ for some supposed best life now? Are you kidding me? I'm not naming names. You can take a guess. All right. My people, Jeremiah 50, verse 6, have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From the mountain to hill they've gone. They've forgotten their fold. But here's, here's, here's the promise of the new covenant and the promise of the truth as we have it in Christ. Listen, I will set up, set up over them one shepherd. And this is one of the things that I'm so thankful that we have a seminary in India and that we're training pastors because I'd love to see a a generation of pastors there as well as generations of pastors here who understood this. You, you, You realize who the highest singular shepherd really is? 
that we answer to every day, that we speak on behalf of as we serve. Do you understand that? I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, which is a prophetic statement regarding Jesus. Because you do know that by the time of Ezekiel, David already dead. Yes. So this is a prophetic statement of the descendant of David, the Messiah who would sit on his throne. He shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Listen, if he's the one who feeds them, then we have to take the feed that he's given and give it. That's how we, as John, as Peter was told, feed the sheep. We feed with the food that he has given. And that's the food that grows and nourishes and strengthens. It says, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, listen, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. That's a powerful ending, right? That, that, that basically says, no dispute. This is undisputable. I have spoken. All right, let's pray. Lord, what, what amazing pictures you give again in this passage reminding us of just your person and your power. Um, the promise of your presence as we are a, a, a spiritual house. Uh, the way that you have designed to continue your powerful role of shepherd in, in feeding by giving us through your apostles that, uh, that foundation as well as that upon, that we use to build on that foundation. Oh God, I pray that we would live in an age of a resurgence of that great simplicity, nothing beyond what is written. Lord, it's just in so many, day, so many places, and we're thankful for faithful men throughout the centuries, but no matter how wise and learned and esteemed any human being has been in his own generation, no matter how closely they lived to the apostles or how uh, accomplished they are academically today, your word is truth. There is no other truth. And the wisdom of men is futile. Lord, grant us that commitment that Christ would be our head, that Christ would be our shepherd, that Christ would be uh, the capstone and the foundation, that he would be the source of all our truth and all of our hope, Lord. Help us. And I just pray for the churches uh, around, Lord, where you have true sheep, I pray that you would help them be dissatisfied by false food. Lord, and that you would bring your sheep into a faithful flock with faithful shepherds where you are the chief shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.